Good morning. Welcome to week two of Five Pillars of the Reformation. Um, last week, uh, if you weren't here, we studied Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And um, today we're going to talk about Solus Christus, Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Um, let me pray and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for this Sunday morning, uh, Lord's Day, uh, our Sabbath, um, our rest. Lord, we pray that as we um, think about you and what you've done, the work that you've accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, that we would um, not only be grateful, but encouraged, um, spurred on, um, Lord, to... Um, to be more like Christ, to uh, see our lives in relation to You. Um, you are the center of all things. You are the Creator, the Sustainer. Um, we owe everything to You, and so I pray this time we glorify You in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, so I'm going to just kind of run through the lesson. Stop me if you have questions, but then we have like some discussion at the end, which is where we'll spend most of our time. Uh, hopefully. Uh, for each of these, I'm using something called the Cambridge, Cambridge Declaration, uh, which you can find online uh, if you go to the website for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Um, there's just a statement that they published back in the early aughts, I think, sometime, some time ago. Uh, and they break down the five pillars um, into these statements. And so the second one, the definition of in Christ alone is this. We reaffirm that our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone, his sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. We deny that the gospel is preached if Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ and his work is not solicited. Um, lots of big words. What do they mean? So first of all, accomplished, meaning the work of Jesus Christ secured salvation for his people. Um, it is finished. Uh, Jesus said on the cross, um, in other words, Jesus didn't just die to make a way possible for us to be saved. He did the work necessary for us to be saved. Um, and we'll, in the other ones, the other soul lies, we'll get into a little bit more about how that works. But just for today, sufficient to know, Jesus accomplished the necessary work. He did it. It's finished. Um, it is mediatorial, meaning that Christ is the mediator between God and man. Um, so if you think about like in the secular world, mediation would be you've got two businesses or two parties that can't reconcile. So you bring in a third party to kind of stand between them and make it work out or come up with solutions. Uh, great episode of The Office where they do conflict resolution and Michael Scott talks about win, win and win, win, win and all. It, it's really funny. But anyways, that's the idea. Um, and the way God was able to do this in Christ is that Jesus is both God and man. So he is able to fully represent both parties in the gospel. Um, he's the only one who really can do that, can stand between holy God 
and sinful man. Um, and you can read more about that in Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> Substitutionary atonement um, is, that's a really loaded term, it's a really important term. Um, it is biblical and it, the easiest place to see kind of the math of what that means is 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is one of my favorite verses. <clears throat> it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? Um, that is like the nuts and bolts of the gospel in a nutshell. Like it's just like very simple kind of almost mathematical statement. And the way this was explained to me in seminary um, is, is what's on your paper there. It says, Our existential sin was placed forensically upon Christ at the cross. His existential righteousness is imputed to us forensically. So if you think about, you know, if you watched any of the Chauvin case or if you've ever, you know, if you watched the OJ case back in the 90s or any other famous videoed, you know, case, um, what's presented in the courtroom is evidence and what's considered, you know, legally admissible, right, um, is actual evidence, okay? I am actually a sinner, but judicially my sin was placed upon cross, or forensically it was placed, placed upon cross. Christ didn't actually become a sinner, but he took the legal ramifications of my sin, and vice versa. I'm not actually righteous, but I have received forensically the righteousness of Christ through the gospel. So that's what substitutionary atonement uh, basically is about, is that our guilt was removed by Christ's work. Um, justification is a Bible word as well, and um, our um, catechism defines it as an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by Christ or by faith alone. So I'm going to talk about what that word imputed means in just a second. Um, and that's clearly stated um, not only in 2 Corinthians, but also in Romans 3. That word is used. God justifies us freely. Um, and then reconciliation... Um, the result of Christ's mediatorial work on our behalf, Romans 5, um, we are reconciled to God in Christ. <clears throat> what it does not mean. And this is what this, this whole thing was about. So in the, in the Reformation, why was it important to say that only Christ is our salvation? It's because... There's a common misconception of our salvation where Christ is sort of the door that gets us in, which is biblical language. But the misconception is Christ gets us in or gives us a boost and then leaves it up to us to kind of keep God's favor, to work our way into God's good graces. Now, this is what I grew up believing as a Jehovah's Witness. Job's witnesses don't believe that Jesus was God. And so, um, 
rightfully and logically, if he's not God, then he's not really our true mediator. There's only so much he can do. And in their mind, all he did was kind of end the sacrificial need for animal sacrifices because he was a better sacrifice, which is like a half-truth, like that's partially true. But that's kind of where it ended. So um, Jesus died to, to keep me from needing to kill animals anymore. But I still have to live a righteous, worthy life to earn God's favor. So he kind of wiped the slate clean, so to speak. But now I've got to fill up the pages. So they get half of it. Like Jesus died to cover my sins, but he didn't give me his righteousness. Which means he can't really be the mediator between God and man because he's not even God. That's what I grew up believing. So um, Catholics believe that Jesus is God. They believe in the Trinity, but on paper at least, and I'm not saying this to say that all Catholics can't be Christians. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that, but I think that on paper and often very confusing within Catholic theology to different degrees, you know, just like it is in any church, but there are um, theological reasons why they basically treat it as if God's grace is not imputed to us or His righteousness is not imputed to us, it's infused in us. And so there's like this, you know, Jesus gave us a boost, but we need to keep doing the things that we're supposed to do as Christians in order to stay in God's grace, to stay in the kingdom. Um, and that's, that's complicated, but it's confusing, and it can be very dangerous to the Christian walk, and especially to unbelievers who are hearing mixed signals and mixed messages about what it is that Jesus actually accomplished. Um, and so, to be clear, one way to think about it is um, the gospel, you know, faith in Christ is not just the door into the kingdom, it's also the floor that I stand on. The work of Christ was sufficient not just to get me into God's grace, but to keep me in it. I'm standing on the righteousness and the forgiveness of Christ. Um, my entire Christian walk, from the moment He brings me into the kingdom until eternity, is based upon the finished work of Jesus. Okay, Not me climbing the ladder to get to God after I walk in the door. Does that make sense? Good. Okay. I use the lips. Of course, I have my glasses on. So, All right. Um, it also does not mean that membership in a church or circumcision or baptism or any outward sign saves us. That's not what we believe. Um, it's not Christ plus circumcision, which is what the whole book of Galatians is about. It's not Christ plus anything else that saves us. It is only Christ. Um, <clears throat> Questions? Yes. Uh, so I feel like a lot of this kind of blends in with uh, this, this sort of idea of faith alone or grace alone as well, but. If we accept Christ alone in the way that it's presented here, why do we practice the sacraments we do? Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Why do we receive a sign? And why do we not only take the Lord's Supper, but why do we do it regularly and repeatedly? 
Yeah, that's great. Very good questions. Um, our confession, catechism, they all talk about these things as being received in faith um, as outward signs of an inward reality. So, um, <clears throat> water baptism, for instance, you know, Paul talks about signifying an inner spiritual baptism. Jesus talking about in John 3, you must be born again. So they're, they're outward signs. There were in the Old Testament, there are in the New Testament. And the reason for it is just super practical. Um, it's a way for us to like taste and see what we really believe is, you know, that God is good. Like he's, it's just, a, um, it, it, it's a, a religious practice that, um, reminds us of our faith that, that, um, how do you build relationships? with people you have a meal with them you spend time with them you know you you know what makes you a family you do things together the same things together you know it's just a way for us to experience what we say we believe um there's probably more to it but that's just like kind of the off the cuff answer that i can give you it's like the reason we do it regularly is the same reason we eat regularly it's just because um, we're hungry because we're that's what we do as humans. That's what we do as Christians. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, it also has this really cool unifying. Like we're going to take the Lord's Supper today, and one of the things I love about it is <clears throat> Christianity is not just between me and God. It's 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 a group of people, and just being reminded that we're all in this together, and we see other people taking the supper with us. Um. And even though out there we may be divided about a lot of different things, but in here, like, that's something we can physically participate in and do together. Um, So there's meaning to it. Does that answer your question? Sure. Probably, if I thought more about it for a few days, I might shoot you a text or something. We'll talk some more about it, but... Yeah, yeah. I didn't mention baptism, but baptism to me is almost like an engagement ring. It's like it does. I'm not married yet, but I hope to be one day. You know, our kids aren't saved by it, but we hope they will be one day, and we're betrothing them to Christ, so to speak. in anticipation of that. Well, thankfully, thankfully we've had such solid agreement with regard to the sacraments caused in church over the years. So, <laughs> good thing that was a group or a softball question. Tongue in cheek. Yeah, everybody doesn't agree with me, right? I mean, obviously, there's certain groups that think that baptism is required. Um, um, you know, they're even in the Reformed camp, there are different groups, you know, on like Lord's Supper, like what age is appropriate to give to a child and what, what's necessary and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we should so. think that one thing everyone pretty much agrees on would be that when received in faith, it's a reaffirmation of Christ and that it is 
something significant happens when received in faith within the confines of the church body. Yeah. Whether it's focus, 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 <laughs> focus, you know, or whether it's whatever, um, something powerful does happen. And it does mean something, but like yeah. so many things we don't necessarily know. It's it, yeah, it's a it's a mystery, but it's not magic pixie dust. So it's not like sprinkling the baby is like some magic incantation. It's it, it's in some way like in some ways it's helpful for us to think of it just as a ritual because you can make you can fall in one ditch of thinking that it's like magic, but on the other side, it's not just a ritual. It's a means of grace. God really is doing something with it because He's told us He is, but. He's not saving us by it. That's probably the main thing. So, yeah, good question. All right, so um, why, application question, why else do you think this doctrine would have been crucial during the Reformation? Catholic Church is emphasis on works righteousness. Pluses. Mm hmm. Incidentally, what did that look like during 16th century, 15th century? What was going on that, does anybody know what was going on that was... Pay your way. I can't remember what they're calling right off the top of my head. Indulgences. Yeah, indulgences. Paying for indulgences was kind of a big deal, yeah. The wealthy could get to Christ quicker than the poor, easier than the poor. Very biblical. Shameful practice. Yeah. Yeah. But then you see that kind of reverted to today too, though, on different factions of the Christian community. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. <clears throat> prosperity teaching. I won't call it the prosperity gospel anymore because it's not the gospel. <laughs> prosperity teaching. All right. Um, what other things do people try to throw into the mix when it comes to Christian salvation today? So, um, what else do people say that we need? So, just I'm not looking for any specific answer here, but just in your experience, you know, it's easy to come up with the cult answers, but even in good Bible believing churches, as Christians, we have a tendency to muddy the waters of our salvation sometimes. What do you think? Or... I have one thing. There's an overemphasis on the emotional response to the gospel message. You know, this whole concept of asking Jesus into your heart, uh, feeling the need for Him, which I feel there's a certain sense where the gospel proclamation is a call to objectively acknowledge something not necessarily feel the way about it, but acknowledge something. Yeah. I think there's no references on the emotional aspect of it. Which I think can kind of diffuse or take away from the whole concept of imputed righteousness and what the forensic reality of our status is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think from like a worldly, secular point of view, people... Don't like to forgive. 
Um, and I mean, I don't mean it's politically, but like don't cancel culture, like you commit a sin, and people look at you if you say you're a Christian or whatever from a secular view, they say you have to have a clean slate. And then people have a tough time whenever like a public sin is committed in the eyes of many, they have a tough time showing grace and forgiveness to that person. It's instead like a black mark on them. It's like they have a tough time saying you can never get past that. You know, if you claim you're a Christian, like, well, you know, you committed this sin, we all see. And there's like a serious lack of, I feel like, forgiveness and grace mm-hmm. in the world today. Following up on that, I think, or adding on to it, is there is like a deep idea or accusation of hypocrisy. Um, towards Christians from people who I don't think understand what the gospel means when they see, you know, we, we acknowledge the need for Christ because we explicitly understand we can't keep God's laws that like very well at all. So obviously we understand that we're going to sin and that that's going to happen and we need to keep God's grace. But outwardly it looks like we're saying, oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And then they didn't do X, Y, and Z, so obviously they're not good Christians. But uh, I think in addition to that, uh, another thing that we add on, on both sides of the spectrum, depending on where your bubble falls or where your church preaches at or uh, whatnot, is your your politics. You know, you can't be a Christian if you believe this way or vote this way or think that this person, you know, and that's an addition that we have added on to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you're not outspoken about this particular issue, you can't be a Christian. Um, I don't. I don't like adding adjectives to the to the word Christian. Um, I think that's dangerous and can be you know, a form of self-righteousness. So like, um, for instance, uh, even though I, I think I understand and appreciate many of the things that people say when they use the word woke, I don't love the term woke Christian. It bothers me. Um, so that's just be an example. Not to say that I don't empathize with some of the issues, but... Um, two, two different levels of truth <laughs> completely so that, that would be one example the other thing is I think even though we don't necessarily in Christian circles equate these things uh, as being equal um, they, they, can, they can muddy the waters in terms of like you're saying what the outside world sees about us too and you know you, you have churches that fall into different camps. Like a church might become known as like the homeschool church or, you know, the, the Christian school crowd or whatever. And like that can be damaging to the gospel witness. Like we're not equating those things to being in Christ. Um, but the way we act and the way we speak could communicate that to people outside so we have to be careful that we're not equating those things yeah what else 
What do you think? All right, so question three may seem redundant, but I'm trying to drill down a little bit into personal works righteousness here. So because of sin, we all tend to try and add something to the work of Christ. In what ways have you done this? Maybe it would be helpful if I went first. Um, It's easy for me to think that my righteousness is tied up in my ability as a pastor or... um, you know, to, to confuse the gifting of the Holy Spirit or the the gifts of God or the, you know, um, <clears throat> my performance as somehow adding to the work of Christ. So that's kind of what I mean. So what, I mean, is there anything y'all can think of that in your life that would fit that description? It can quickly become sort of that older brother mentality in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son. You've got the one that went off and, like, you know, wasted his time and his money in kind of loose living, right? And that's the, the obvious application of the parable. But then you got at home this older brother who, when he sees the father's love for the, for the lost son, his response is not uh, humble or grateful. It's. 
what? I've been, and he literally used the word slaving. I've been slaving for you all this time. Where's my fattened calf? You know, where's my gold ring? And like, if you think that your relationship with God is one of like a master and a slave, that's primarily the way you think about that relationship. That demonstrates the pride of the human heart that you you really think you're doing something to earn God's favor, that you have to do something to earn it. Um, It's not a response, as you, I love that word, as to a loving father who you know, yes, he, he disciplines them, those whom he loves, but he loves you. Why does he love you? Not because you're the greatest son in the world, but because you're in Christ. And he was the greatest son in the world. So, um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an upstream battle. If you just sit still in the Christian life, you're always drifting back towards that. There's all, you're not uh, drifting towards greater confidence and rest in Christ. You're always drifting away from it. So there's what, you know, God uses the means of grace and um, fellowship of believers and the work of the Holy Spirit to keep us moving towards that dependence. Uh, It is a constant struggle to believe that our justification is final. Why is that so important? Why is it so important to believe that our hope is secure in Christ alone? Because you could say, I mean, well, it doesn't really matter. If I'm safe in Christ alone, then I'll just live however I want and it'll all get sorted out in the end. So, why is that a wrong way to think about it? I know for me, I'm someone who really has a pattern of struggling just with uh, the spiritual despair in certain seasons. And um, one passage I have to continue to write myself to is um, the account of uh, the demon-possessed boy and the father. And uh, he tells Jesus, like, I believe. I believe in you. I believe in you. But help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. And um, just that, just to be reminded that even on my best day, that there will always be um, something that is keeping me from fully um, loving Jesus, trusting in Him. And um, I don't want to backtrack to last week, but um, you know, thinking about Sola Scriptura, uh, at one point I was very influenced by a. a theologian Karl Barth who taught that um, scripture is fallible but it's the Holy Spirit that works through the reading of scripture that gives you the infallible message and then that really shook um, my faith in scripture it's like if I can't believe you know this, this story is true how can I believe in Jesus and what he did and have hope in that um, but just through the reading of scripture the Lord really chipped away a lot of that um, false teaching just to be able to find um, that security in Christ and the trust in who He is and what He did versus who I am and, you know, my works. <coughs> and, you know, even in, you know, those periods of despair, um, according to Third John, just when my heart condemns me, knowing that God is greater than my heart. Um, so, so important to uh, have that security in Christ because, you know, as Paul says, that Christ didn't die, and uh, 
resurrection of the dead. We're still on our sins. So I'm just going to put our faith in Scripture and who Jesus is. That's everything. You reminded me of a story. Um, When I, I became a Christian in college and was studying philosophy at the time, and at the same time I became a Christian, I was also introduced to some of this stuff, this you know, the Reformation teaching. And I was I was having real problems with uh, one of the things we're going to talk about in this class. And uh, I was reading a verse in Romans nine. <clears throat> And I had this, you know, this Christian in my life who was teaching me this stuff. But I got to the verse that said, it's not up to him who wills or him who wants, but God who shows mercy. Therefore, God will harden whom he will harden. And I got to that and I was like, it really just shook me. And so I went to my philosophy professor who was also a Methodist preacher, like on Sundays, and I didn't know anything about his faith. I just knew he was a preacher. He was also a philosophy major. And I was like, this is a smart guy. I'm going to get his opinion on this. So I walked into his office one day with the Bible. And I opened it to Romans 9. And I said, I really want to know what you think about this verse. It's really bothering me. And I've got one person telling me it means this. But it, if that's what it means, then it sounds like determinism. and all. So I'm like talking to him. So I read this verse to him. And he takes his glasses off and he looks at me and he says, Mr. Weinbrenner, did it ever occur to you that maybe Paul was wrong? I was like, thanks for your time. (laughs) Not at all what I was expecting. But probably he has the same view of Scripture that, you know, um, <laughs> wasn't expecting that, but that's yeah, that's why this is important. All right, um, any other answers to that question? Why is it important that our hope is secure in Christ alone? I think that there is sort of an inverse logic that's working here, too. Uh, you know, if it's it's Christ alone that secures our justification. Uh, that implies, you know, we don't have, it's not our work, it's Christ. Um, but if it weren't secure, if we could lose it, that implies that there's some sort of work that we could do that would either allow us to keep the faith or lose it. Yeah. So um, the fact that it's secure really, I think, cements the fact that it's Christ's work and not ours. Whereas if it weren't, then it would be our works that allows us to keep be sanctified. Yeah. He is really the anchor of our soul. Very good. Okay, uh, I just want to end with this little statement that I enjoyed from the the same declaration that the top part came from. Is that evangelical faith becomes secularized? Its interests have been blurred with those of the culture. The result is a loss of absolute values. Things like, was Paul right (laughs) or wrong? Um, Permissive individualism. 
and a substitution of wholeness for holiness. Recovery for repentance, intuition for truth, feeling for belief, chance for providence, and immediate gratification for enduring hope. Christ and His cross have moved from the center of our vision. Um, All of those things, it's easy to see happening in the world around us and creeping into the church. Um, Those influences are always um, a danger, not just today, but they have been since the first century and really even in the Old Testament. In fact, today, 1 Samuel 4 dovetails really well with our lesson. So you guys be listening in, see if you can figure out the the connection. But... um, just, just this, uh, this idea, even just the simple idea, the notion that something is actually true, and it matters. And no matter whether we feel like it's true or not, even if it doesn't even make sense to us, it's not that it's wrong; it's that our logic is off, or that something is missing. So, all right. Um, thank you all for being faithful. Uh, let's, we'll dig in next week. And um, looking into soundproofing this wall. Just, hopefully, it wasn't too distracting today. So. <laughs>